Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have The Conjuring 2, starring Vera Farmiga, Patrick Wilson, Francis O'Connor, and Madison Wolfe. Story by Chad Hayes, Carrie Hayes, James Wan. Screenplay by Chad and Carrie Hayes, James Wan, and David Leslie Johnson. And directed once again by James Wan. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. It's time to continue on with our Conjuring trek uh, through the uh, the Conjuring universe and lead up to next week's Conjuring Part 3. Um, but before we get there, we're going to talk about the second film in this franchise from 2016, uh, Conjuring 2. This is going to be a, a lot of fun to talk about. I think we have a lot of interesting things to discuss with this particular second entry. I think I told you, I think I maybe did this wrong last week. Um when I told you the order of what had made the most in this franchise, it's the nun, then this one, then the first one, and then Annabelle creation. So we're dealing with the cream of the crop here, at least what people went out to go see. So they're making their money back on, on a lot of these films later. Um, this one's about $40 million. So a little bit, a little bit pricier for, for horror, but what do you think of that? I mean, they're popular. This series is popular. Yeah, I think that's an interesting number. We've talked a lot about how that's the price you actually don't want to be at. You want to see if you can keep it under 10 or blow it up over 150 to 200, right? Mm -hmm. And $40 million is the type of film that no one wants to make. It's not big enough to like get star-studded cast power Mm -hmm. or have probably enough in for special effects. And nobody wants to spend $40 million on a drama. That's a really tough sales point but 40 million dollar films in the early 90s were fine mm-hmm. but in 2020 ish man that's that's kind of no man's land so um it might be a bit different as this is what the fourth entry in the series i think by this came out this was the fourth in, or third entry Number in the three, series yeah mm-hmm. so like you said it already had nice established very loyal horror fan base to support it but yeah that's um what did it make do you know 320 worldwide. Holy smokes. So, yeah. yeah, so it did pretty good. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Excellent. Well, we'll get right into all those uh, nuts and bolts and all the details, but let's get started, as we always do, with our flight question. hell again yeah. <laughs> stepped into the doorway it's the church of hell um <laughs> i really like the music in this movie I, I really like those choral it's like a bastardized version of church music is what it sounds like and it goes perfectly with the character that they have playing around that we'll we'll get to that later but why don't you go ahead and hit us with the flight question this week this one's a lot of fun the franchisability of a horror film is not anything new to anybody so I wanted to stick around in that space since that's we're fully on mm-hmm. in a franchise right now. And so my question was, I'd like you to pick a single standalone horror movie that wasn't franchised. That's to DVD or VHS, just a single standalone horror concept 
and then spin it into a trilogy. And then there's a sub question to that, which is what is the general idea for the second part? And what is the general idea for the third part? Excellent. So do we want to go, I do number two, you do number two, I do number three, you do number three, or well, do we want to just shoot, shoot the works and go all the way? In? Sure. Yeah. Let's do that. But let's talk about which movies we're picking or which uh, standalones we're picking first. Let's do that. Okay. Go ahead. Let the right one in. Oh, okay. Excellent. What about you? I am picking uh, Peter Jackson's Dead Alive, otherwise Ooh. known as Brain Dead in New Zealand. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> Me to go first? Go ahead. Number two. Yeah. Part of the trick on this, I think this is going to come up today a little bit too, is do you have enough organic interest in the way you've told the story to continue with the story? And that would include interesting side characters and setups that can be played or spun into future iterations of story? Or are you going to have to reconstruct an entirely new world mm-hmm. with very little meat on the bone to try to figure out where to go? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So is that fair? Mm-hmm. I think they can both work. I think the first one is a little bit more front end heavy, mm-hmm. but plays off better in the end. Cause it just kind of think fleshes out the world real well. That's what this movie did. Agreed. The one we're going to talk about today. Yeah. yeah. So when we finish with let the right one in, we have two rather young protagonists. And I use that word uh, liberally (laughs) on a train headed to God only knows where the second iteration of that film is with the damage that has been left behind from the pool to the apartment complex to everything else. We almost have, a road trip horror flick. Mm. And that is whatever entity in, and then we're talking about the Swedish version. Let's not talk about the American. (laughs) Okay, fine. The authorities tracking whatever version they can find of them down. And then in so far doing it, how these two children essentially are forging a path forward. What, horrible acts are they going to have to commit to find another place to live stay on the run yeah and i think the other piece in this that's interesting is how long is it before oscar is going to be turned into a haken type character which Mm -hmm. is the provider for ely in the first film yeah and that is truly horrifying because this is about the perversion of the innocent Mm -hmm. um I don't want it to be super, super heavy with violence, but I do want them to have to make some very tough decisions. And there does have to be the seduction of the unknowing in a vampiric way. I don't want it to be so mobile that we never really set down roots. So maybe we avert something at the train station early on. And then we find a place to kind of hide out. Like a homeless shelter. Oh, sure. Yeah. And then the nefarious acts of vampires start to pick up the uh, news cycle and the investigative team or whoever it is kind of starts honing in on them. And we go like that. But wait till we go for number three. Okay. So that's number two. Let's hear you. Do you have a title? Let me out? (laughs) Yeah, I I I didn't title. That's I should have. Let me out. Yeah. Excellent. Let's hear your number two. Oh, yeah, that's, that, that sounds great. All right, so Peter Jackson's Dead Alive. Uh, you've seen it, right? Mm-hmm. We'll have to do it on the show one of these days. Okay. Uh, it's a zombie. I know about it. Yeah, it's a yeah. zombie-esque film. It's super gory, but it ends, you know, they save the day, but 
the authorities in Wellington there are going to be like, oh, my God, what the hell happened in this house? All these people got chopped up. They turned into the living dead. Like, what's happened here? So the origins of the virus, so to speak, is the Sumatran rat monkey, which in the opening of that film they pick up, and it's fr- Skull Island is is what it is. So Peter Jackson's a huge fan of King Kong, obviously. He got to make his own version of it. So mm-hmm. I want Dead Alive 2 colon skull island i want a team of researchers to go to this island to like investigate what exactly came back from here and what possible and of course we're going to go down that road of like we're going to use it to like fuel we're going to cure cancer with this thing or something sure but what's cool about it is it's a rat that infects these people i want to see kind of like what other mutations could happen out in the wild on this unforeseen island like animals cheetahs crazy thing and of mm. course like the island native they're all going to be like turned over so it could be a fun kind of tropical-esque horror zombie gore fest a really great version of the island of dr moreau sure there you go yeah exactly i yeah. like that mm-hmm. i can't tell you enough matt that it is quite literally the goriest movie i've ever seen in my entire life but not in an off-putting way comic booky or it's very sl- it's very evil dead-esque and it's okay. uh but it's it doesn't stop. The last thirty minutes is just endless. Mm. What do you got for number one, or for your? For, how are you wrapping up your trilogy? Your let the right one in trilogy. So, so part three is called "Let Me Back In," coming home <laughs> because that's where they go. Okay. We go all the way back to whoever and whatever it was that turned Ely initially. Okay, we're talking centuries old. So this is going to move now to a very traditional castle-like setting. It doesn't necessarily need to be a castle in Transylvania or Bavaria or somewhere like that, but I do want a structure with an agedness to it that takes these two and brings them home, and inevitably what's going to happen is Ely's maker or Turner or father or mother vampire figure is going to turn on Oscar. Mm. Because there's no choice, and whether that's he, are they are they older now? Maybe Oscar's probably a good five to ten years older, but Ely's still not. Sure, yeah, that's the trick of the film. Mm-hmm. We're going to do this film on the show someday mm-hmm. too. But Ely is essentially turned at like the age of eleven. Yeah. So what ends up happening is Oscar either has to flee, which then leaves him with nothing, and then tracked by said vampire clan that doesn't want him and those secrets out amongst the living ready to spill the beans or the blood or whatever <laughs> or is Ely going to turn him so that he's capable and able to then defend himself so i'm not exactly sure this is going to go down the path of traditional yikesy jumps like horror yeah i think this is going to move almost into an aliens like space where there are some moments, but probably a bit more on the action. Cause certainly the vampire that turned Ely is going to have a clan and I need a clan because there has to be some fodder for them to do some battle with. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where it goes. And I'm not entirely sure which way I would want to go with Oscar. If that's him being turned or if that's him having to flee and what Ely has to do in order to, like, there's a whole, I think there's a lot of meat on the bone. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. You can only run from what you've done in the past for so long. Yeah. At some point, all secrets are revealed and you are caught. I mean, it's not like we can go down to say Wataneo and build a fishing charter because there's the whole daylight thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
that limits where you can go. And that also creates a tough problem Mm -hmm. for the entirety of the series and in traditional vampire lore, not they sparkle in the sunshine. Mm -hmm. You're really vulnerable during mortal waking lived hours. That's tough. So you have to be hidden so well that you're playing a game of hide and seek for hours on end Mm -hmm. that if you Ollie, Ollie, all come free, get found. It's Ollie, Ollie, all come curtains with a stake through your heart. I think there's a lot of meat on that bone to play with. And I'm also, I'm in a vampire space right now, which I guess I'm returning to like 15 year old Matt, <laughs> whatever that is. But yeah, so there you have it. That sounds great. Maybe need to move to Seattle. It's <laughs> just raining all the time. That's not bad. Yeah. That's pretty good. Um, that's interesting. I'm surprised the guy who wrote the book that both films are based on never expanded on any of that. Me too. Yeah. Like with those characters at all. Mm-hmm. Interesting. My part three, Dead Alive 3, still dead. Uh, <laughs> the end of my one is going to, of course, end with some infected animal or person getting on a boat um, and then going. But I kind of want to go to a location and have just kind of an all-infested, like, vacation-esque horror zombie film. But a place we have we don't really get to see very often. I kind of want to do something in Greece. Mm-hmm. So... The infected, they'll, they'll end up there, and we'll, it'll almost just kind of be like a staycation of horrific proportions. And we'll wrap it up, and it'll be more of the same, but uh, I think it's fun to take those elements that are so domesticated in Dead Alive. It mostly takes place in that house uh, and then um, the island in part two to kind of do something with, like, just complete strangers, but then have, like, a lot of fun with it. Uh, Are they there for like a festival or yeah, sure. a vacation summer getaway thingy or something? Maybe a wedding. Ooh. Maybe it's just Mamma Mia, but with zombies. <laughs> no, it, it it's for sure. Or a family reunion something. Oh, yeah. that's good. Yeah. I like it. And they got to survive. I just think the backdrop of Greece is just something that isn't utilized nearly enough. You know what I mean? Creed, yeah. all those islands, that whole facade of, which I would love to go to one day. You and me both. But uh, yeah, that's my that's my part three. Let's go, everybody. Greenlight that. Throw well, some money at us. Think, we'll write those scripts. I think at least the, these ones, I mean, Peter Jackson's still making movies, but I don't foresee him ever going back to the dead alive space other than to, like, produce. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I'm telling you, if the idea was good enough, I bet he'd be like, let's do it. <laughs> so Yeah, I think he would. Excellent. Those, those, are, those are fun. There was a lot. Any kind of credence to one I'm surprised you didn't actually pick was the It Follows uh, series. Yeah, Actually, that was what it was up until about eight o'clock last night. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, we've talked about that so much, and I've talked about it. And uh, yeah, uh, yes, significantly. What about a one I considered? Well, I don't know if I want to see it, but I probably would. Would you want to see the continuation of whatever's going on in Hereditary? The yeah. Hill Payment story? <laughs> mm. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's with the sequels, uh, there's only, you know, there's so much you can do. And it's almost good if things are just kind of left alone. Another one I considered just honorable mention was uh, Black Christmas. And I was like, oh, I could just make like a, a black, uh, just holiday trilogy, Black Easter and then Black Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. And it's just the same movie, just different holiday. Why not? Why not? Yeah, why not? I love it. Oh, okay. Excellent. Well, this is a lot of fun. Um, well, one more real quick. Go ahead. Would you consider Sisters Horror? Yeah, why not? Body horror. I think so, too. Sure, yeah. And there's some room there also. That mm-hmm. was one that I was maybe playing around with a little bit. I think there's a lot of fertile ground that we mm-hmm. could grow some interesting plants in there, too. Yeah. 
Sisters, Call it brothers. Sisters only. <laughs> Cousins. Nephews. Uh, Sisters almost seems like a film that David uh, David Fincher, David Cronenberg should have made in the 70s. Oh, yeah. It's a De Palma right. flick, and, and it suits, like, he does his De Palma thing in there, but that almost seems like a Cronenberg movie, just like conceptually. Yeah, you're right. Twins and everything. It just, it feels so brood-like. That was mm-hmm. another one I kicked around too, but. Okay, because I did Children of the Corn in my mind a little bit as well. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Well, let's let's get right into the deep into the Conjuring Two with our review breakdown. It's okay. This is as close to hell as I ever want to get. Alrighty, so the Conjuring tune, uh, two opens up. Uh, where Conjuring one kind of teased where we were going. The 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 the, the archdiocese wants us to go investigate this house in Long Island, New York. Oh, geez, I wonder what that is. It's Amityville. So we start there at Amityville, and I got to tell you one thing. Oh, well, let's talk about. Let me say this first, and then we'll talk about Amityville, and then tell me what you think about just all of this. I feel like this is a bit of a stronger opening than the last movie. I mean, Annabelle and all that bullshit with her and the garbage with those kids. And then I think this is putting the Warrens in there. This is what I wanted. I wanted to see them in their element, her entering the netherworld, leading a seance to figure out whatever the hell happened here. So I chalk one up. I don't know if we're playing a competition game, but we'll chalk one up for Conjuring 2 because I think this is actually a better opening for these characters, for the world, than we got in the last movie. And Get the fucking doll out of here, too. <laughs> You've had it with Annabelle, haven't you? Oh, I think I have, yes. Okay. I don't disagree with that. I'm glad she's reserved to a shot in the final scene. <laughs> yeah, they definitely want to remind everyone she's still in play mm-hmm. in the final bit. But you're right. Now we've moved away from her. I don't disagree with that. Yeah. I think it highlights the talent in the couple, too, which is certainly Lorraine, mm-hmm. if you buy into her telekinesis and metacognition or whatever her superpower is. I don't know. Do I buy into it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I actually, I'm with you there. Uh, I think Amityville is pretty exhausted at this point. Well, let's talk about that because that's where this scene gets almost killed for me because Amityville to me has always just been the film, the book, the events perpetrated as such a facade and a hoax and it's been proven as such too by a lot of people over and over and over and over and over again yes. you're right been done to death to death but, haha the thing that is true though is the ronald defeo did in mm-hmm. fact kill his family in this house it's but the what's in the book and the fame aspect afterwards and then the movie that came out so soon after that too with mm-hmm. uh almost said josh brolin james brolin and marco kidder she's made it twice in the span of 19 minutes this morning yeah How about that Excellent. three times actually black christmas sisters and that oh look at that superman two and three. One, two, and three. One uh, and two uh, i don't know any marco kidder movies we just checked the boxes on all her stuff <laughs> excellent uh so this is a bit of that's a bit of a miss for me and then it's going to come back around to that thing that really tripped me out in episode one which is the whole based on a true story thing which is we're led to believe that these two did in fact go into amityville and do this and say it was so evil the evilest of all evils if it wasn't amityville if this is just some other generic stock haunted house because then we get the introduction of this demonic nun character which mostly works for me up until probably about the last scene that it's in. 
but its reveal is effective with the mirror. It's an effective look. I mean, not, she comes, <laughs> none comes out looking dead presidents. I mean, <laughs> none's, yeah. you go to church and you see a nun like that preaching to the choir. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? This is something of another world. And I like that. I like the music that accompanies her. Valak, we, we're going to come to find her name. Th- that'll all work for me. But they're trying to build it in the idea of, oh, yeah, this happened at Amityville. You know what I mean? Oh, oh. Just, it, it kills me again. I totally know what you mean. We're st- I'm stuck in the same thing. And I don't know if I need to make peace with it, but I kind of can't. <sighs> okay, so maybe I can sour mash this for a minute. I'm not sure... When this is this like seventy seven? Is that about the setting for this time? Exactly seventy seven. Exactly. Yeah. I'm not sure when Ronald DeFeo passed, if he's even passed, but I'm curious if a better start to this isn't just some kind of rando seance over Amityville that the church said, but maybe, and they're kind of going this way with number three too, a bit of a legal route mm-hmm. where they're seancing DeFeo. Mm-hmm. And inside of that, we get whatever presence identified, Toby, Azazel, Valak, you name the demon that you want, okay? Bathsheba. (laughs) Bathsheba, right. Okay, good. As an influence there. Mm -hmm. Because what, what happened in the first film with the Annabelle part that you're exhausted with, and rightfully so, Mm because we've had a lot of Annabelle, is... I think it set up the world of The Conjuring. I'm not sure it did a great job of setting up the world of the Warrens no, particularly. Absolutely, no, absolutely not, yeah. So once you can get away with that in the first film, but now that we've established... Okay. Well, oh, oh, let me finish it, and yeah. then you can jump on that. Yeah. For, for maybe I'll say you can get away with that to a certain... Or I, we, you, yeah. I, yeah. can get away with that for a moment... But eventually we have to get into how the Warrens operate. And Mm -hmm. I think in the second film, that's the space that this is in. Mm -hmm. As The Conjuring One is a new film and we're exploring things for the first time, you have a little bit more leeway. Now, and this is going to be an issue for me in this film, what we're talking about right now, what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. I need less of the periphery of characters and more of the proper in the world of how the Warrens go about this paranormal stuff. And this movie is going to suffer from like 15 demons at one point. But if we are really looking at what Lorraine can do, this is a great moment for a movie that would seem to feature her because we're opening on her, whether it's in my version with the in a jail cell Mm -hmm. or in this version in some rando table sequence over Amityville with a priest. Go. I know that's what you need from this movie, less of the periphery and more of getting into it, but the first film didn't even do that, so that's why this film has to do it. You know what I mean? We spend so much time with that family, buying their house, living with the family. The only other time we see the Warrens is on the lecture circuit and then a scene at home when she says, Ed, I feel uneasy about you know doing that yeah. again. This film has to... Get them on TV. Get them yeah. in front of people to to prove prove. I feel like this film has to do a lot of heavy lifting for what wasn't done in the last film because we were too busy setting up the next shit. You know what I mean? So uh, I, I I get what I get what the, the the kind of the issues you the qualms that you kind of take with that, but I I like that in this movie because we didn't get a lot of that. I feel like the Warrens in this one are at least a little bit more personable than they were the first go around. 
Well, let me defend what you said even more because I'm actually, mm -hmm. I agree with you. Mm -hmm. We go to that talk show and they have the naysayer in there. Oh, you have the sound? Go ahead and fire it up. My experience is at the Amityville House. And now we're going to talk to my next guest, Dr. Stephen Kaplan, who says that the investigations the Warrens conducted into the Amityville haunting is a load of hogwash. Why is that? Well, it's been well established that Amityville was a blatant hoax, but that hasn't well, that's never stopped been proven. It. Yes, it has. The Lutz family made everything up so they could profit off of all the publicity. That's just not true. Look, kind of, we kind of all the time. It is true. It's very easy to sit on the outside and pick apart their story, but it's something very different to have been there and experienced it for yourself. <laughs> I don't need to go to the moon to know that it's not made out of green cheese. Listen, Ed Warren's never seen a house that he didn't think was haunted. Love that By line. the time his wife is done blowing smoke and ringing bells, they've got everybody else believing in ghosts, too. What exactly are you a doctor of, anyway? Come on, Warren, try and show a little class. I'm not going to show class as somebody who's sitting here telling lies about my wife and Be me. Be careful who you call a liar. What are you going to do about it? Jerry, Jerry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we go on these shows to inform people, but every time I open my mouth, another one of these little Ed. ass academics pops up, tries to undo everything we've done. Could you please take a I know, breath? I know. I like this. I like that they have to go in front of these people to prove their legitimacy. And I like that this guy calls them out on it. And we see how defensive he gets, you know, when he's called out. Because we talked a lot about the snake oil salesman uh, two weeks ago. You just took the words out of my mouth. Mm -hmm. If Ed is getting exposed as possibly that on a nationally broadcast Donovan, mm -hmm. whatever the hell you know, show that was Donahue or whatever it Sully was. Jesse Raphael. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can see him being defensive. Mm -hmm. What's set up now is the legitimacy of the Warrens. And frankly, that's been a question about most of their stuff since the Warrens came to some level of celebrity or prominence in the mid to late seventies through whenever they were basically debunked as snake mm -hmm. oil salesmen. Mm -hmm. Cause they were. And Amityville proved it. Of course, they took a crack at Amityville. Everyone took a crack at Amityville. If Ed is trying to defend his ability to provide for his family, then that also plays into everything that I think you and I like about the Warrens, mm -hmm. and that's sort of the family element of this sure. and how we've created this family team. Mm-hmm. I'm with all that. And I'm with you when you said this is really working. The problem is we've set up a really nice fertile environment with the exception of a line, a throwaway line almost from the priest as they send them off to just look into this family in London where the priest says something to the extent of credibility is tantamount to the church working in any sort of capacity. It doesn't quite say that, but that, and that goes from yeah. the mystery of creation to all of the non-secular stuff, rib, creating a human, Moses, like all that just mythology, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not played out except later on when they decide the whole thing is a hoax and they leave, but there's no consequence to Ed having to defend his family's ability to and him provide for themselves and finding a legitimate foothold in a world, and this is also challenging, Jesse, mm -hmm. where you can't ever prove it because for all of the issues where I've seen a ghost, no one has ever proven to me, here it is. Yeah. 
it's not a thing. It doesn't exist. Yeah. And you can say, look on the line, bullshit. Yeah. I don't buy, not, it's not there. Yeah. So, He's trying to defend his profession, if you want to use that yeah. term, mm -hmm. with something that's unprovable. And if he's debunked, then they have nothing he's left. he's a fraud, yeah. I think that I, I, I like the foundations. I wish they would go into it a whole lot yeah. more. And to me, that's like the basis for a whole movie. Yeah. Do you think maybe this is kind of has better seed works in uh, introduction of these characters, maybe in like the first film? This should be the opening scene to the movie. Like the entire Conjuring franchise is that like sound that, you just that played? First that should be it. Them on the show? Yes. Because it really establishes their whole kind of moniker, their whole kind of the way they go about investigating all these hauntings and happenings. But I, I love, I, I really like it. I like how he gets defensive. I, it just, I don't know, just in the grand scheme. And I, I, I like how we've picked all these movies, one and then Annabelle creation and now this one. It seems like everything's like all out of order or told in not a very effective way. What do you think? I did think of something while we were watching it this time, and maybe this is kind of the biggest sour mash of it all. When so-and-so writer is like, hey, I have the rights to the Warren family estate. Let's turn this into a movie. They go to Warner Brothers and do this. Do you think maybe a better option? Because it almost feels like this is where they want to go with it should have been to take them as inspiration, craft two fictional characters, uh, Ted and Lucille, uh, Lucille Williams. Yeah, I think exactly right. And then you can get fantastical with it because mm -hmm. this film, more than two weeks ago, oh yeah. my God, I mm -hmm. mean, there's yeah. some crazy stuff that's going to happen in this movie. And again, you're selling this to me and that great, I love those yellow titles over black with the uh, the creepy church music based on a true story. Like I'm still having to buy into that. This happened and it did happen. The Enfield poltergeist in London, in England here really happened to this family. But in order for, for, for you to make this an entertaining film, they have to ramp it up the tension and create these characters. So then you introduce a nun and a crooked, and we're going to talk about them in a second on their own. Those characters probably work pretty well in their own right, but in a legitimate realistic world that is being sold to us that's a bit of a hard pass you know what i mean the curse yeah the curse of the conjuring is the success of the appearance of annabelle in the first film this movie is scripted so particular to the same tropes that the first film had from doors locking to hidden in cabinets to shit flying around that it almost becomes a reheated version of that. And so I think they said, hey, that Annabelle thing worked really, really good. We need another version of that. And that's also important in world building. I'll be fair about it. Do you I, want to have... And I think they're good at it. I do too. Yeah. The problem is going to be mm -hmm. Valak mm -hmm. and the Crooked Man are both so remarkable looking. It steals away from the B minus version of Reagan that we're going to get when the little girl is possessed. And also even Bill yeah. Wilkins. Yeah. They look like the C team version of the Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan era, Valak, and the Kobe Bryant. I can't believe I just said this. Yeah. Rest his soul. Yeah. Let's go Tim Duncan because I like the Spurs more than the Lakers. Oh. Ouch, I know. Shots thrown. Yeah. Crooked man. Yeah. So I want to ask you a question because you said we're going to get to Valak and the crooked man in just a minute. Mm -hmm. 
if the takeaway from the seance about the Amityville that we get is some Warren backstory power stuff, yeah, but then the introduction of chief protagonist, mm-hmm. doesn't that make this Valak's movie? You mean chief antagonist? Did I say protagonist? Yeah. I'm sorry, yes. Doesn't that make this Valak? And, and isn't well, this ultimately Valak's movie well, anyway? Well, this is what happened in the last movie because you introduce Annabelle and then like she shows up again in act three to like take over Bathsheba's movie. You know what I mean? Valak shows up in the final scenes of this one to take away Bill's movie. Right. <laughs> they hijack their own movie with their own creative creations and not to their own fault because they're creating, I think, interesting things yeah. that just don't belong in this universe. Right. Valak. Uh, we're getting way ahead of ourselves. Well, let's do it. Okay. Let's do it right now. Valak. Yeah. Creates the crooked man from a little lamp dreidel spinny top thing. It's a that's a zoetrope. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> and then she possesses a ghost yes. <laughs> to serve as the conduit yes. that is birthed from Elaine's introduction to what happened at the Amityville horror story that has some bullshit Hockneyed connection to Valak wanting to kill her husband. Now, all of this is super easy to solve, everybody. I'm going to solve this for you right now. Instead of going to London, where Valak can show up and then go through all these processes, set this film, and I know this is The Nun, but this is not The Nun. This mm-hmm. precedes The Nun. Mm-hmm. Set this movie in a convent where there's a little girl who is troubled by some demonic possession. And we solve all of that. And you still get to make Valak's movie. The thing is, they just keep wanting to have that hook. Yeah. The hook that's bothering me, which is the based on a true story element. Oh, right away. Like yeah. two minutes, like 30 seconds in and you're already, uh-oh, here we go. Yeah, here we go again because, yeah, I'm on board with that. But that's a fiction movie. But I, w- I would see that. I would watch that with that character, with that nun character. And oh, what? You mean when we go see a ghost movie, we don't mind like jumping over the suspension of disbelief a little bit. No, yeah, absolutely. But like when when you're trying to tell me that like Ed Warren crawled through the watery muck to vanquish the demons and got splashed with water in his eye, I'm like, okay, like what is going on here? And I had that problem two weeks ago too. Like was Lorraine Warren really crawling around in the walls, like looking for Bathsheba? There's a moment we're going to get to here in a second. And you said something to me and I'm going to pose it back to you too, because I think it's fair. Okay. You walked off and you said, I'm not really sure you like this franchise that much, Matt. I'm saying, Jesse, yeah. I'm not sure we yeah. really like this franchise that much. I w- again, I would like it more if this was just fictitious creations. The buy-in mm-hmm. for me would be, I would be all there. Mm-hmm. Like if you sell like a spooky haunted house movie with a demonic nun terrorizing a family, oh, that sounds great. Like, And then the look of her, like, yes. She's sign, great. Sign me up. But when you try and tell me, oh, yeah, this really happened in 77 to this family, and then you have the pictures at the end and the actual recordings. I'm like, okay, some of this did happen, but then there's no way a lot of this other stuff did happen. Mm -hmm. So where's the line being drawn? Because is this, are we here, A, for entertainment, B, for a realistic tale being told, or or C, just to be scared? And I I don't know where where I fall in on this, but this Conjuring universe is providing a, pretty problematic uh question for me 
And that's like, I don't know if the Warren stuff is as interesting on paper as the stuff that they're creating with Annabelle, the nun and the crew. Like, I'd rather see that than the stuff I'd rather see with them. As you were saying that, something just occurred to me. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Ed for just a minute. And maybe this provides some reasonable (laughs) reconciliation to this area I think you and I are both struggling with. Mm -hmm. If we take traditional character arcs, there's two conflicts in there. There's the external, which would be the force that's opposing you. And then there's the internal, which is the force that's in you making your life miserable. Mm -hmm. The external forces or the external conflict in this film are all around him. And that's easy to see from Valak to... Annabelle to Bathsheba to you name it, they're, they're crooked man to mm-hmm. Bill. They're, they're, they're there. They're present. There are these entities, the internal conflict and they've set it up is Ed's continual struggle for acceptance in this paranormal community as something more than snake oil salesman. Yeah. And so and they do, like Patrick Wilson plays the skeptic piece on this pretty effectively, not on the point where he's calling his clients liars, but where he, we do see him, like these are pipes, this happens all the time. I believe that's at the beginning of the first one mm-hmm. when he's talking about, yeah, it's most time it's nothing. Yeah. So in his endeavors to try to legitimize his business and therefore be seen as something more than just snake oil salesman, you have a lot of of struggle over what is the decision that I'm going to make to go all in on this case, because if I'm wrong and I'm being had, mm-hmm. which ends up happening in this movie to a certain extent too, yep. then I undo myself. Add to that. My wife does have the super ability to communicate with the dead and we are a deeply religious cu- couple. So when the church asked me, which also has an element of supernatural belief just inherent blatantly built into it ed presents a very complex troubled individual that wants to do good for his family wants to help people that need help trying all through chasing the 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 entity that can never be seen because that's the whole point of we've got something yep i think that weakness in his character and look that's that's a lot to write that's Mm -hmm. that's a lot to pull off Mm mm-hmm and I'm not sure a lot of people want a super cerebral breakdown of Ed Warren, but it has to be there on some level. Well, I would rather have a quiety, slow ghost story yeah. of the actual happenings than all the extra stuff they cram into that. Because the extra stuff that I do, I love all that stuff, just doesn't belong here. It's just so out of, it feels out of place. It feels, the suspension of disbelief is at an 11. <laughs> it's, we really have to like buy into like, Oh, like they were hunted by this nun in their house. <laughs> this daughter saw this. Can I, can I play the, yeah, play it. <laughs> Oh God. Which one is it? Honey. What's wrong? Mom. Who's that? Super effective. You tell me you see a darkly silhouetted nun with dead president's makeup on, you're not going to run for the hills? I'm gone. I- imagery works, and the music, it-, it sells it for me. And it actually leads to my favorite scene in this entire sure. franchise, yep. which is with the painting in the room, and I love it. Yep, me too. Doesn't belong in this movie. 
that's one of the best five sequences in horror period. It's really well done. And really, but the setup is ridiculous. I was hard on Vera Farmiga two weeks ago, but she sells it for me in this. Like she's, yeah. I, I see the terror in her eyes. And is there ever, let me think, what am I trying to say here? This doesn't this doesn't belong in that way because you got to tell me okay so their daughter at some point saw this creepy nun in their house okay bullshit mm-hmm. but do you ever kind of get the impression with this nun character uh, that they're because you remember the, we we talked about it Vera Farmiga's blue eyes when they close are, are they trying to draw a parallel that the nun kind of looks like her too yeah facially mm-hmm. I just looked at her mm-hmm. that's the actress that plays her mm-hmm. she looks like Vera Farmiga yeah she's not. She's not as blonde, and I think Vera Farmiga is a very, very nice-looking woman myself. Um, but uh, look, I'll show you. Yeah, what's her name? Bonnie? Bonnie Ahrens. Check her out down at the bottom. Mm. Yeah. So, yes. Look. There's something there you could play with, too. <sighs> yeah, it's all around it because it's the parallelism, parallelism of Valak and her efforts compared to Bonnie and her efforts. And here's the other one that I want to give you that rounds this out, because then if we're going to do that with with Lorraine, mm-hmm. Ed needs a running mate. If you take what we've been talking about and Ed's quest for legitimacy, then the girl, um, the main girl that keeps getting possessed, not Judy, um, Jenny. the girl, the, Judith. The, God, yeah. No, that's not right either. No, Janet. So many J's, <laughs> Jesse. <laughs> well, their daughter's name's Judy. Right. Yeah. But the the infield poltergeist is Janet. haunting Janet, right? Mm-hmm. We get a moment with her on the swings where she tells Lorraine, I don't have any friends. Nobody takes me seriously. I was smoking the cigarette so that I could curry favor with this little chick over here because I need a friend. And isn't that similar to Ed in some ways too? That's good, yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. it gets me out of that scene that is egregiously bad for me, which is <laughs> Patrick Wilson oh, no. doing, I know you like it, and so I, I'm going to be respectful because that is a turn that like good deal breaking bad for me. <laughs> but I know, what, I know what they're trying to do. Yeah, yeah. They're trying to show that he's willing to be the bridge in the father element that's no longer present in this family. Yeah. I'm going to add one more thing to this that's there that they still don't hit. Mm-hmm. If you believe that Ed Warren, like I do, yeah. and most of society did as a snake oil salesman, then is there more ripe prey to dig your talons into than the woman who lives in literally Chantateville mm-hmm. with four children and no father around? Like yeah. it's screaming yeah. to be taken advantage of. Well, I think we talked about that two weeks ago that they don't nearly play up that idea of him trying to drum up business, you know what I mean? Right. And really pull it out of the out of the people, which is something that would be interesting to me. But I love what you said because you're right. Yeah. But that's the, like, think what path you just took us down. Mm-hmm. This is part of the problem here. Well, maybe it's waiting for us in the next movie. <laughs> Valak is so good because you're drawing parallels between her and Lorraine, and that's making me think of parallels between Janet and Ed. Mm-hmm. And Valak's goal in this movie is to impale Ed on some stake mm-hmm. for some reason that we have no idea. And here's the question that we're never going to have answered in this film. Yeah. Why does Valak choose this Hodgson family all the hell way in London 
when the Warrens are two blocks over in the cul-de-sac. It's a huge miss for me. <laughs> Why do we have to go there? Did you notice the screenplay credits? Well, yeah, there's three-story people, Juan included, and then four people. So the the Hayes people wrote the last movie, just them, and then now they had Juan in tow, so he's probably putting his input in, and then they probably had to bring the, the fourth person on to just help make it filmable, probably. When you all watch this, and I hope you do, Look at the credits on that because there's an ampersand and there's commas and there's the word and mm-hmm. separating all of the writers. All of those mean something as far as story credit goes and who contributed what. And this is starting to feel like a couple, three, four ideas smashed into one concept now. Can I give you my prediction of like how that went down was the Hayes got first crack at it after the success of the first one. So come, which, up, come yeah. up with the second one for me. Which was infield poltergeist. Bill Wilkins, right? Had been. Yeah, it had to have been just let's get into another case that they really did in, in real life. Juan's coming back. So he's like, okay, let me look at the script. Oh, there's, there's, some, there's issues here. Let me add my touch flair to it. And then they go to shoot it. And then Warner Brothers is probably like, oh my God, like this is kind of turning into a mess. We got our stock person here. Let's have them round it out. They'll go to set, do the rewrites. And then we have that. You know what I mean? That's, that's how movies get made. I mean, yes. We talked on Tombstone. What a colossal clusterfuck that production was um this thank do- you kurt russell for saving that <laughs> thank you kurt russell for saving uh, tombstone for us mm-hmm. this doesn't have like the feel of like it doesn't feel like a there's a lot going on but it doesn't feel like it's like a mess like film wise you know what i mean it's pretty well put together i think it's pretty well acted i mean a lot of these movies that i realized this week um rest on the shoulders of children you know what i mean yeah like and children's performances and they've whether it's the first conjuring uh last week with annabelle and then this one they found some pretty good talent that doesn't completely derail the film for you you know what i mean there's some believability there with how vulnerable the events affect those those children we gotta talk about the clash real quick because i learned that matt is not a fan of the clash as they bring us to london with london colin by the clash Mm -hmm. I only bring that up because I got to tell you, like, I am a pretty big fan of The Clash, but it, it jogs something in my memory of something I used to own back in high school, which was a shirt of the London Calling album, which I think on Rolling Stone's top uh, 500 albums, I think it's number seven, eight or seven. Mm. It's pretty high up, mm. which is a takeoff of Elvis Presley's, coincidentally, um, his debut album, self-titled Elvis Presley. It's the same font and everything. Mm. But this shirt was reversible. So on the the front side of the shirt was the album cover. The inside was the lyrics to the song London Calling. So when I would wear it to school, I would like pop into the bathroom at like lunch and like take my shirt off, turn it inside out and boom, new shirt. That is pretty cool. Yeah. And I would just be like, everyone would be like, hey, did you change? Like what's going on? I was like, no, it's the same shirt. That's pretty cool. My pits would be a little fucked because they'd be all white right there from the inside. But uh, I thought that was that was I'd never seen a, a shirt like that before, and it had a, all. It was written almost like like graffiti. That's cool, like in blue graffiti. It was yeah, that is cool. Uh, so yeah, we're here in London and Enfield, England, with this family. I'm just gonna say I I kind of like this family too. I kind of they're really hard on their luck, like you said. They can't afford biscuits. <laughs> their house is flooding uh, uh, consistently. Uh, they look like they're barely getting by. Dad's ran out on them, and he's had twins with the neighbor. <laughs> some some shit. Uh, I feel bad for them. So when this thing latches onto them, I I do really feel for how horrible things get, especially since it, like 
last week it was, or two weeks ago, it was Lily Taylor, and it's the matriarch of the family. Here is one of the children, so I, I feel more sympathy uh, towards them to finding an answer for that. And to me, the film would exist a whole lot better if it was just this Bill ghost. Because when you break it down, it's really simple. It's this man who had a hemorrhage in his chair. He died living in the house, and he's just mad that his family isn't here, and he's haunting this family. Oh, my God, it's so simple. Like, yeah. it's, it's not a malevolent force. It's almost a misunderstanding. Really well said, and I think that probably is part of the Valak and Crooked Man issue as well, well. We'll get to that later, but, like, does that work for you? I mean, like, that's a pretty simple basis for a haunting. Sure. Yeah. Uh, he just wants his house back. Yeah. So maybe what they have to do is prove to him that he's not living anymore. Let me give you one thing to think about. Okay. In the first film, when Lily Taylor is possessed by Bathsheba, that is done to sacrifice her children to the to Satan, I believe, to curry favor in the community of witches that worship the devil. Those are pretty big stakes. I can see at base studio executive level how this script was like, wait, the first film was... A witch, man! It's trying to <laughs> sacrifice her children, and this is a guy who just wants his house back? Like, I see... I know. How in studio level, they're like, hmm, that, what we need to up the stakes. Throw a nun in there. <laughs> what they don't see right is the execution of what that means, because him getting them out of the house is so germane to all ghosts. Mm -hmm. That's what they're all doing. Yeah. They're actually quantifying that mm -hmm. and making a story out of it. And he could go through from the you know, proverbial knocking on the walls to the children's toy that rose down, like rolls down the hall, like to, to the, the common tropes that we see over and over to how far is he willing to go in order to get them out? And then you get to the question that's a tricky one, but solvable with any kind of setup and decent writing is like, why can't they leave? And as he continues to push the envelope to chase this family from what he sees as his house, they have to not only figure out who owned it, but then how we can prove to him mm -hmm. that his family's gone. He doesn't, and it can't just be like, here's the bill of sale, buddy. And here's your wife's death certificate. Like yeah. there's a story there yeah. and it almost, you know what it becomes? Yeah. Almost investigative. Yeah. Uh, but at the studio executive level, they're like, no, this is a guy who just wants his house back. That's not good enough. Make it bigger. Yeah, fuck. Warner Brothers probably sabotaged their own movie again mm -hmm. um, yeah. because you ask, is that enough? And the answer is probably no. That's like not nearly as good as Creepy Witch. But what makes this film interesting, and they go into it, but not probably nearly as enough as they could, is the whole de-hoaxing of this whole situation when they bring in Maurice Gross and the chick from The Born Identity. Pompka <laughs> potit. Yeah, uh to kind of film and find evidence, like, that's interesting, too. And then you bring the Warrens into that fold, and now, okay, now we're cooking with some pretty interesting material here. It'll, it just all gets derailed in, like, the final sequences when, like, we're literally throwing the kitchen sink literally at the, at the film when we don't have enough. Like, we don't have enough? Like, there's, there's plenty in this movie. And what's maddening about that, you're right, mm -hmm. what's maddening about that is if there's a television crew there, the television crew there is pure exploitative, you know, nine o'clock yeah. tabloid TV nonsense that now Ed Warren is up against. And that entire goal is to show how foolish these people are. 
And meanwhile, he sees that they're not foolish because he recognizes there actually is an entity here and these people need my help and their safety depends on me. And we've got the guy with the worst hair in the history of mankind. Man, that's a bad, bad look. He's got some... Ooh, Maurice. Thin, oh, that, that is thin. And that is lightly bearded eggshell, brother. Woo, that's rough. <laughs> He's got bad hair. Oh. And that clown, that clown mm-hmm. looks more legitimate. Than Ed. <laughs> how, Jesse, yeah. I'm not sure how this didn't get seen in this way because most of what we're doing right now is just off the cuff with a bourbon in. And it's... This is pretty obvious stuff. Well, you, like you said, like all that stuff's there and can make a good movie, and then all the extra stuff that they put into it, I also like, I but just too. not like in, this, right? in all it mixed in the same stew. I mean, this is like this is like a, a terrible meal to have. Do you? Can I say one? I'm keep no, interrupting. Go ahead. You. Go ahead. No, go ahead. For all of the extra that's in there, mm-hmm. I was a little. This is only the second time I've seen. No, third. But, well, we went to see this when it came out, and I saw it not too long after that again. So mm-hmm. we saw it to, right. For all of the extra that's in there, mm-hmm. I was a bit frustrated and starting to get a little bit bored mm-hmm. with how long it was taking. And I know it's the way the conjuring works with the Warrens, but how freaking long it took them to get there. It took them an hour to get to the family, family in London. Mm-hmm. And what's happening in that hour is the exact same shit that happens to lily taylor's family and the first one the chair moves the bank like it's the same thing it's yeah it's the slow burn to get to the warrens to come there and that's also done i think well by james wan i mean he's he's really good at the he builds it pretty well the smoke and mirrors aspect of it but it is a bit like we talked about two hours and 10 minutes it's pretty long for a horror film i'm usually used to my horror being like an hour and 30 minutes which you kind of get in and get out really quick, but can't we get them there in like thirty minutes max? I don't know. You know what I mean? Like you want to, you want to have emotional connection to the family and build them up to something so they're just like not just like there. Uh, and you got to like do something with the Warrens that way they're not just sitting there at the house. So that's why Valak's introduced. You know what I mean? So by the time they show up, there's just so many things going on at the same time. Uh, but let's talk about this real quick. Okay, uh, Crooked Man. You can go get your Crooked Man shirts on tbublic.com right now. He looks good this week, too. <laughs> he does. That's a nice-looking shirt. He's a pretty interesting... He's played by Javier Botet, who played... Uh, I told you while we were watching the movie, he played the skinny, angular, female, male thing in, at the end of Wreck. Remember oh, the yeah. thing with the... That's him. Mm-hmm. And he played the the leper guy in uh, It, the one that's like oozing outside the Nebolt house. Mm. So he's playing the crooked man. Great character, great look. He comes out of the zoetrope. It's this like supposed to be like and his rhyme. And I love how the little girl Janet is like the zoetrope is like a sub in for speech therapy. She's trying to like help him like curb his stutter. So like you see those things are like that's all right. Yeah. Um, 
But then this thing shows up. It, it comes out of the dog, and then it becomes Janet. And again, it's the buy-in of the based on like, okay, you tell me this thing turned into mm-hmm. this crooked thing. Make a different movie with that. That's its own. That's its own franchise. Like, get it out of here. Uh, allegedly, they are making a, a Crooked Man movie. I'll probably I'll go check that out, and they'll probably just wreck it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They like find a way to like they introduce all these interesting things like Annabelle, the nun, and then now that. And, and none they, of them are executed. And then they go make their movie, and it's like they they just lose sight of like what made it so good. Yeah. To meet the nun up until the final sequences is really good because she's used so sparingly in the shadows, a side glance in a mirror, which is so unnatural. Of oh, that painting, that edge. Mm-hmm. I woke up at five in the morning, and I just I had to paint. And he's like, Jesus Christ! Like you're painting that thing. That <clears throat> that works for me. But then on top of everything else, it just, it really doesn't. Uh, I'd, I'd love to spend just more time with the Enfield Poltergeist, but then you keep, you want to, I remember the first time I saw this. Mm-hmm. I was like, I know this story has to turn along and we got to get the Enfield Poltergeist thing. But part of me, I was like, well, you introduced this nun thing in the opening scenes and that was so visually striking to me. Yep. I want more of that, but that's not the story. But it is but it the, is, the story, right. and that's what ends up ruining the end of this film. Right. Uh, yes, you're 100% so that, right. That's weird. It's something that they tease me with that I want more of, but then they establish a whole other B-plot with this family, which is also on its own right, can be interesting, but I want more of that. But then they give me what I want, and they bring this back into that, and it ruins the whole movie. Mm-hmm. So there is a poltergeist that's been terrorizing this family, and we come to find out that it is a scared soul from Bill Wilkins mm-hmm. that has been hijacked by Valak as her minion to scare away the family, because that also is questionable. If he scares away the family with get out of my house, then they wouldn't be there then the Warrens wouldn't investigate the house because there's no one there, and they're there to just observe the family, which then wouldn't provide any access to Ed Warren for Valak. And you know what all that is? That's all a bunch of just total bullshit. (laughs) That's really bad, bad story continuity, Jesse. Well, do you know... um... Why would Valak do that? Well, that's, here's the problem with not having rules for like ghosts and demon movies is like I, I, my interpretation of them is like, okay, like Lorraine seeing Valak, that's like for her. That's her demon that she's got to figure out that's like has a cloud over her life. Why is that same demon going over to this family in England? And don't give me forces of God right, and right. This, this craziness because right. now we're super suspending our disbelief. Yes. And then... Uh, Remember, Matt, based on a true story. <laughs> no, exactly. Valak, the Warrens are just two blocks over on the cul-de-sac, the house with the yellow fence. That's them. Go to London and get them there. What? Yeah. What? Let's- Again, you said it. <laughs> Crooked Man, Valak, the infield poltergeist are three, Ugh, three non-related movies. entities yeah. that are smashed into it. And you know what the setup for all those is, which is even more maddening? Mm. The fucking Amityville horror. Oh, I know. It's four movies. <laughs> they could have made a movie just about Amityville and the hoaxes and this and this and, and that and like all the repercussions of them. 
It probably wouldn't be very scary, but it'd be scary, I don't know, like legally. <laughs> Do you think in the in real life, not in film life, that the Warrens were ever sued for fraud or libel or slander, they had to have had some legal recompense laid upon them, right? In all of the years of debauchery and snake oil that they sold. <laughs> you would think. There's a story there too, and maybe we'll get that in three because it does take oh, place no. in a courtroom. I don't think we are. But what I'm saying is... There's literally a scene, Matt, and I, it's either going to ruin the movie or just like make me stand up and cheer, but there's a scene in the trailer where like Lorraine falls off a cliff and Ed goes and like saves her and they're like dangling off this cliff. And I'm like, no, Oh, based on a true story, Matt, they really did that. They led a really interesting life. (laughs) The Warrens are not a couple you ever want to go to Mexico with. This is why I like the, you, you chagrin the Elvis moment. At least it's founded in something that someone could actually do. No, (laughs) this is probably the least likely thing that Ed Warren, uh, snake oil salesman, uh, bastard would probably do would be to sing Elvis to a family. And I think that's why I like it. It humanizes the fictitious elements of the Warrens and they're real people. Okay, that's fair. I'm not, I won't argue with you. You know what I mean? Like it it makes them, and because I made a joke off cuff, I'd be like, okay, the Warrens are like, we're moving in because it's good to be close to them when they're in. I'm like, Warrens, demonologists, parapsychologists, family counselors. Well, if we're going to play the whole spectrum of jobs that Ed has, he's, you know, Moonlights is a uh, fantasy football commissioner. He's a capable painter at 5 a.m. in the morning. He can overhaul a carburetor and the lickety split. And he's also a whiz when it comes to modern technology and especially in the art of recording. We've just gone too far. Like, you're right. Mm -hmm. I don't disagree with you. This is why they shouldn't be real. uh, They should be fictitious creations based on people. I talked about Texas Chainsaw Massacre and how Leatherface is an amalgamation of Ed Mm -hmm. Gein and a few few other people. Mm -hmm. They needed to do the same thing here. Like, if you're really trying to tell the tale that you're trying to tell me, have these people not be real people? These, this, you're tell me a fictitious story, and I'll probably buy into it a whole lot more. The Elvis part serves its purpose, and it it accomplishes what it sets out to accomplish, and it's creating a bond in the family. The reason that Patrick Wilson sings is because the turntable that he uses, which was taken by Dad, who went and had twins down the road, and all the albums. He's trying to replace, this is metaphorical, but it's also spot on. He's trying to replace what dad has taken from the family. The male shows up with something that they all love, which is music. And that's even set up because David's soul is all over the wall of the oldest girl's room. And why that isn't Elvis, I know in her room she had David's soul, but it should be Elvis on those posters. Okay, that being said, he shows up. I mean, if you're comparing David Soul and Elvis, my God. <laughs> okay. No, the best part of the movie was when the sister turns the light on and she's afraid there's a ghoul in the corner and she turns it on and it's just a poster. And I was like, it's David Soul. <laughs> Starsky and Hutz are haunting this room. And that and, and when they show the pictures at the end, there was real David Soul yeah. art on the wall. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's the most frightening thing of this whole movie. That's weird to me. So they took the time to dress them like they did in the pictures that are around the infield poltergeist, but then couldn't find a way to stick to a linear story. Let me finish the thought about no, Elvis. Go ahead, yeah. He replaces the turntable and he buys a couple Elvis albums and they fire up the turntable and it won't work. Okay. That then becomes a moment where Patrick Wilson gets to show us that he's got a good Elvis impersonation and it's pretty good. I'll give him credit. It's not on him. 
I the, think turn, the, I th- the turntable should just work. I know. I think the other thing is I really like that song, too. I uh, oh, I do, too. I don't, know what, I don't know what it is. Next to In the Ghetto, it's the best Elvis song of all time. Well, the other thing I think they're missing that they could really drive into more and from the first film is the Warrens constantly leave their daughter back at home. Okay. They go live at the house with these families, treat them like their own children, sing to them, sing these songs. Like, I would love to know how the daughter feels about all of this. There's a story there, too. Dad, could you sing Elvis to me? No. Take care of my painting on the wall of Alec, though, while I'm gone, honey. Mom, can you, can we go cook? No, I'm going to scrape in my Bible. Exactly. Go get Annabelle. You two can listen to some Elvis records together. We love family stories a lot. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a a, a, a I'm not, scrape in my Bible. Not that we need a C plot in this thing, but there's a whole other story there about how the daughter kept getting left behind, yeah. and getting replaced by all these other families. That's not the movie, but that that could be another one. Yeah, called it, neglect. It's called super neglect. <laughs> and I want to say Annabelle comes home, goes into that, but fuck, I ain't watching that again to give you a yes or a no on that. No, you're not. Uh, you sound a little frustrated right now well, with you this do, film. Well, you do too. Oh, no, I do. I'm for sure. I am. Well, my rating's going to be interesting because there's things I really like. There's things that are super effective for me. And yep. there's there's a lot in here that just really muddles up the whole equation. Mm-hmm. Let's get to the final act of this thing. So <laughs> they stay the night. They don't get to share a bed, but they, they're going to have a hot rendezvous when they get back to Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can we do it again? See, those are little characters. They're like, I was like, the, the real Ed and the, the real Ed and Lorraine Warren. They show their pictures at the end, and I mean, like, I was just like, you're like, you really telling me that like they really had this type of? Th-? Maybe they did. I don't know. Who am I to judge people? In a very uh, Faith Hill and Tim McGraw kind of, all we ever do is make passionate love from sun up to sundown and write books and songs about it. <laughs> they're so gross. Have you ever seen any interviews that the two of them have done together? I heard their relationship in trouble though. So have you ever seen them? Though? I have. Yes. They are so. Oh my! It's just you want to just vomit. Well, they might be getting divorced soon. So. Oh, I guess the the embers in their bed have cooled, Jesse, or maybe another ember was brought into the bedroom. As we've talked about last week, now we're turning into the National Enquirer map, but this is great. Oh yeah. Uh, as Jennifer Lopez breaks up with Alex. How weird! I was just going to say the same thing to go be with Ben Affleck again. And, and, and A Rod's launching a men's cosmetics line. That's not a joke. I'm not kidding. And, his, and, and I just think of Ben Affleck's grody back tattoo um, of a dra- red dragon. dragon. He's Francis Dollar. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So Jen's gone back to Ben. Faith and Tim are on the rocks, and the Warrens are shooting fancy eyes at each other across the bedroom in separate rooms, in separate s- single beds. That's right. That's where we're at this week. Oh my God. Oh, so here you go. Let's, you're going to raise it to that, to that. (laughs) Amen. Um, okay. Okay. So in the final sequences here, it's Christmas. Christmas is about to get ruined because the family, you know, they're being haunted Mm. and, uh, born identity, uh, Franca Patenti is going (laughs) to prove that, prove them, uh, it's weird. I hadn't seen her since she Uh, got shot in the head and born uh, supremacy mm -hmm. and they flew off the bridge. And I've never seen that girl in another movie ever since until this one. Yep. Run, Lola, run. I think she's in run, Lola, oh, run. Oh, okay. Okay. Anyway. Things go crazy, but then they prove like the fraud. They find like, there's like a camera angle that like sees Janet, like flinging dishes and this and like, Oh, that's what's going on. She's just going in there and flinging stuff about. So everyone's like, okay, we're going home. And I think that's a moment that works pretty well for me. I mean, 
for all that the hope that the Warrens and all these investigators, because the police early on in the film are like, we can't help you. <laughs> well, but I'll way above our pay grade. I'll contact my priest and we'll see if we can get some people involved. And there's some comfort that the Warrens, again, that's why the Elvis thing works for me is because they bring like this warm, homely feeling when they come up to, when they come to these houses. Uh, but when they have to leave, who's going to help us? Because the thing's still there. And shit's flying all, all around, and Janet's flying to the ceiling and, and whatnot. Okay, let's talk about the moment, because this is, this is, I forgot that this happened in the movie. Because mm. I was like, I was like, I know they leave, but then they come back. Thank God they don't go all the way back to Massachusetts and then come back, because I would probably turn the movie off. Mm-hmm. But they're on the train, and then Ed dumps his bag. And then the tape recorders form an X, and for whatever reason, he figures that out is, I need to play these tapes at the same time. Yeah. X marks the spot right here. This is where you need to interconnect the tape recordings to understand what Bill will... Oh, my... Seriously. Yeah, that, that's that's a leap, man. They talk about a leap of faith a lot in this movie. Mm-hmm. That's that's a quite a... That's a chasm. Mm. Chasm? Chasm? Mm-hmm. Which, which one is it? I think chasm is the way you describe the uh, space between Ben Affleck and J-Lo over the last 10 years. Oh, but maybe we're turning it just into a valley now as they're rekindling that He turned that down Jennifer Garner. I mean, like, it's, what's, what's wrong with her? Nothing. <laughs> exactly. She's a lovely woman. Exactly. Okay. Uh, yeah, chasm. So they, he, he, they put the tapes together, and then he says, if I'm right on this, and he plays them at the same time, and it creates... So uh, J- Janet the Ghoul was... <laughs> speaking in tongues during the first sense, which that moment when uh, Ed's talking to her and he's got his back to her, I think that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Shallow depth of focus, and it's just him, and we see her, like, morph into Bill and then demorph into... Like, that's all. That's a great scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so it's that recording, and then what Maurice and them... Or when she's in the pipes. He plays them at the same time, and... It creates a a thorough a thorough dialogue, saying "Help me, help me!" This this and that, and I'm like, "Oh my god!" Like that is, yeah. And then like Vera Farmiga has like this moment where she's like, "Like oh my god, it's her!" The whole time, like the movie, like almost at the end, like all those elements that I loved over that are in the corner over here, that I want to return to the movie, but I really don't mm-hmm. because it's going to ruin the movie. They all come back into the movie. And we get a finale of crazy proportions. Let's. How does all that register for you? I mean, that's insane. Well, my favorite part is when lightning hits the tree and it breaks it, and then Roy Hobbs walks up and carves out wonder. Oh, that's the wrong movie. We finally get the appearance of the spike that's going to be the end of Ed. And man, that that set design on that is not good. Look, it looks super plastic. If this is fiction, does this play better any better if it's we're playing fast and oh. loose with like the rules and this because yeah, again we're, yeah. like, again we're trying to d- tell me that this really happened. Yeah, no, w- yeah, we're back to that. No, you're right. Um I want to say it plays a little bit better. Okay. That line needs to not be in here, especially after the first film. We don't need based on a true story. We get it. It's the warrants. This, you've created the characters. That's all you need. Yeah, we get audio recordings that make an X on the floor that Ed is, in a matter of moments, able to splice together. We get the return to 
the girl and the exposition dump on what the plan was and why she had to do that or it was going to kill her family. And then we finally get to the separation of husband and wife by a door and the most incapable axe wielder that has ever set foot on earth, which is the neighbor, which I don't even know why this guy matters. And we get the moment where the Warren's true love will be tested and trust and all of that shit comes into play. Do you like that or is that a little too cheesy? No, it's, I don't like it. No, like I don't like that he gets steamed in the eyes so that he can't see because he doesn't. What, what difference does that make? Oh, I guess I'm talking about that moment <laughs> where they're like by the door. No, yeah, no, no, I know. Yeah, no, I don't like. No, it's just one more silly thing that we need to like dick around with. Like you can separate them in another way, which is the crooked man is in this part of the house and Valak is in this part of that. There's any number of ways to do it other than literally the door between them. Why can't you just open the door? Because the ghouls are keeping it close, I know, man. but you know what I mean? I just think, like, you know where this is going. You know where it's going to end up. Yeah. The question that I think was in, in doubt for me up to Valak's reemergence is, is this going to be Bill and his exorcism to possessed ghost to free ghost? Or is this going to be... Valak's puppetry and you get it. It is going to be Valak's puppetry. And once we finally figured out that Bill hasn't really mattered most of the film, he hasn't really mattered. Then Valak reemerges upstairs in one of the rooms. And I got a question for you. Okay. Is it in the room that Valak appears with all the crosses? Correct. Why aren't they upside down? They went back downside. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's the locked room in there. That's their bedroom. Right. Why isn't... Uh, um, I don't want to see the exercising of Bill's ghost from Janet because they did that in the last movie. Right. But I also don't want to see Valak possessing a ghost to possess a family to make them insane. Mm-hmm. It's pretty... This that's insane. That's 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 quite the plot. That's quite the the villain uh, scheme. I mean, I thought the Bond villain schemes were outlandish. <laughs> this is this is something else. Well, and I forgot that this had happened. Based on a true story, Jesse. Mm-hmm. How how does the crooked man fit into that? Just the general physical presence to terrorize you through the hallways. Because once Ed gets steamed in the eyes... We created a Crooked Man character in the script. He ended up being pretty cool. You need to put him in the rest of the... You need to put him in more scenes in the movie. Mm -hmm. That's his only purpose. Mm -hmm. He has has to keep showing up. Mm -hmm. And that scene... When Ed goes to the Zotrope in the tent... And the crooked man's face there, and he like goes through the ceiling, and that again ends up in the closet. Like, that was pretty cool. Yeah, like, he looks cool. Uh, and then he like bursts it, and he has like hook hands. Like that all works for me, just not in this movie. What tr- what horror trope are you getting most tired of seeing? The slow walk to the object that you know is something spooky, or um, <laughs> the doors just always closing. Yeah, that one's pretty tired. Which on the doors? The doors. How many doors shut in this movie? It's got to be at least 15. That that scene when uh, Janet is uh, terrorizing uh, Johnny, the one brother who has two lines. Okay, I'm glad you said that because when he said we all have to stick together and walked in there, I almost was like, Jesse, who the hell is that kid? Well, yeah, the last movie, uh, 
Annabelle come or creation and conjuring. They all, there's always one sibling that just has nothing to do. <laughs> yeah. They have, they're not going to contribute. They're not going to talk, but yeah, he did. And when she's terrorizing him in the kitchen, the, the back door closes, that door closes. And I'm like, how many more do- doors can close in this house? Yeah. Uh, I hate that slow walk. I hate that slow walk to investigate something creepy. Mm-hmm. If I if real life, I would probably run up to it really quickly and like kick the tent, yeah. make sure there was nothing in there, and then run back really quick. I wouldn't walk slow, you know what I mean? It'd be a quick in and out. Mm-hmm. But we get into the room. Valak's there in the corner. Ed's got uh, Janet hanging out the window. They're both going to be impaled by this thing if they fall. Um, and then we enter Nightmare on Elm Street territory where Vera Farmiga realizes the name and that is power enough to squash the demon. Oh, God, I hate this trope too. Because we know its name, we have power over it. We have... Uh, Dominion. Come on, use the right term. Okay, sorry, sorry. Valak. Let, let my cat lick come out of, out of me. Uh, uh, we, we have Dominion over the demon. This is... Just the same as Nancy, I turn my back on you, Freddy, and he turns into a nothing. Oh, God, I hate this. It's bad. Valak, all you needed was its name, and why did it give it to you then in the Bible? She had that spaz moment. <laughs> she just scribbled its name out. And it's obvious, and then been spelling it all over the house, allegedly. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. With all the letters and stuff, which in initial viewing wasn't obvious to me it stood out but now it's like a sore thumb i'm like oh my god it's just freaking everywhere mm-hmm. god I, the, the, the that character's i want to know more about it and we get that movie and it sucks <laughs> but it's so powerful and so unique looking that it can't be disposed of just by words alone you know what i mean oh gosh it's 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 a weak ending what's the other uh gosh i think it's that other lily taylor film that was where she just screams a demon's name and it goes away. The ghost, remember that? Ukraine. There you go. Oh, that's the, re- hey, that's coming. that's the haunting. That's co- that's the remake of the haunting. Yeah, let's be clear about that. To Vincent Price, <laughs> right? Though, that's a bad way out. All you have to do is say its name. What are you thinking of the haunting house on Haunted Hill? No, the haunting with Catherine Zeta Jones, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with Liam Neeson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That oh, oh god, yeah. Like that's. But I, again, I don't know. I don't want to see another exorcism scene, but I also don't want to see that. I need something that they haven't figured out that's in the middle. And because these films don't have rules, they don't. They never figure that out. Well, I think we missed that because there was the opportunity for this to be an investigative film if they wanted to go that route with the Warrens being the help us decode why Bill, whatever the hell his name is, won't leave us alone. That's just not what this movie was. Mm-hmm. I want to say one more thing to you. Okay. If the Warrens are experts in all things supernatural, then, and this is going to come up in the nightcap, that's why I'm, I'm, this is called a setup. Day seven of podcast school, getting into like the latter executive higher 300 level classes. Now you you got to write a thesis, your thesis on on podcasting. (laughs) If they investigate, and through that investigation, it uncovers all of the pieces of this, then we don't need to worry about anything other than the return to legitimacy of Ed Warren proving that he's capable intellectually. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the big pieces 
that's been sorely missing is Lorraine can conjure the dead and speak to the dead and say on C. Ed's just kind of general handyman that can pull off a really good impression and seems to be likable in a fatherly role. And those are nice traits. But if she's the talent, I guess, talent. Well, the supernatural piece, though, is what I wanted to get to, and that's they're good against ghosts. I don't know if the Warrens are great against monsters. Do you like the Warrens' chances against the Crooked Man? No, because he's not real. Do you know what I mean, though? Yeah, I do know what you mean. I don't think they've done a good enough job at going into what they're really good at. Yeah, that's the setup for the nightcap. Well, as far as as far as what I can decipher, Ed's really good at talking to the demons, mm-hmm. and Lorraine can go into the spiritual realm, and that's it. Uh, but they, they, I need that. We need that fleshed out like a whole lot more. I don't know. Like the whole end. What, is, what is Ed's technique talking to the demons? Like, let's just get onto brass tacks and quit dicking around here. Like, come on, just tell us what you want already. We're burning daylight. He did. He didn't want him to addressing him by Eddie, <laughs> Ed, Ederson. <laughs> Call me by Ed. just um just Ed, please. We don't need to make jokes about my father. Why don't you just hurry up and tell us what you're after here, buddy? Mm-hmm. Enough of this tomfoolery. I just yeah, it's the 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 end of this is. I don't. I'm not. It's not saying rush because it's. Paced oh. out just fine. It's it's all right, but it's just there's so much going on in that house. I just like you can't even focus on anything. Mm-hmm. Crooked man, the nun shows up. Bill's there. Uh, Ed and Lorraine are bouncing all over the place. The Ed, Lorraine gets blasted to one of the walls. You tell me that elderly old woman in the photos in the end got thrown against a wall <laughs> in London. These two people barely showed up to have that conversation that we hear at the end, and then they skip town. Yep. It's true that that really happened. Like they were very not that involved in this particular case. So why this one was picked, I have no idea. But they saved the day, as the film needs to. Like you can't have everyone die. Mm-hmm. And Ed gives his cross, which seems kind of like a big again. That seems like something you'd give your daughter. Uh, he, oh yeah, he gives it to this girl. Give it to someone when you think like that's a kind of a big moment. Of, we find out that the girl died in the same chair that Bill died in years later. I think that actually did happen. So, again, the truth element. Uh, and then we get back. They take the zoetrope of the Crooked Man as going into their uh, treasure museum. I want to know about that chipmunk, man. That taxidermy chipmunk off to the right. What's the story behind that thing? <laughs> Rabid chipmunk? I know it. God. Oh, yeah. Sign me up for that movie. How did the remote control or the lazy boy not end up in the museum? I thought also? it would. Be, I thought it would have been the chair, right? Yeah, because they said they didn't know where the chair had come from. My husband bought all the furniture when it came with the house. Yeah, it's probably the chair. Got to be. Ugh, I don't. It's because they want that. That's the next. Because no one, we don't want to do another Bill story. Bill hemorrhaging in his chair. We want to do the Crooked Man movie. Mm-hmm. So take that, so we can get into it. Uh, that's it's that's that's a bit of a miss for me. But then they dance to Elvis. Do you like the moment at the end when they dance to Elvis? I mean, like this is like a nice cutesy moment for the two of them, at least. For all of the things that you and I have trashed in this film, the one thing that has worked consistently in both of this is Farmiga and Wilson are good together on screen. I agree. I buy them as a couple in just about everything, as much as I was... I think it's better in this one than the last one. That's fair. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're good together that way. And... Them dancing to Elvis, putting a bow on it is a nice end to the film and all things are good with the Warrens. I just wish Judy was able to at least sit on the couch and watch them dance. 
Oh man, it, where, where does she go to? Like, does who watches her? I mean, Grandma. What the fuck? Um, mm-hmm. Annabelle. Annabelle will keep Snyder. That's the end of Conjuring Two from 2016. Mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> That's all Matt has to say is. Mm. Uh, okay, hang on a second. Do I have any anecdotes I want to add to this? I mentioned the 40 million budget, 320 million girls. I mean, the movie made cash uh, when it when it came on. But uh, someone actually died of a heart attack while they were watching this movie in the theater. Maybe they were already sick, but, man, that gnome was too scary uh, for them. But, people, you need to go read about the real Warrens and read about this actual case because there are claims of, you know, hoaxes and frauds associated with this case as well. The film's not going to present that to you because they want you to fully have verisimilitude into, into their concept. But... You need to go look into these into these people. I mean, there's such a suspension of disbelief. Whereas, if this was just being given to me as fiction, I probably really like this movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just the fact that based on true story, and we get it like seven minutes in, and we're gonna get it next week. You know, we're getting it next week too. Like, I, I just don't. I don't know. I like these aren't the types of, of movies for me then that so suspend the disbelief of truth and realism. You're either fantastical or you're telling a true story. And that's where Emily Rose, and I've been hard on that movie in the past. I think that's where that movie skirts the line a little bit better than these Conjuring movies do. Mm -hmm. Because that is another based on a true story thing, but they keep it more courtroom drama and then the creepy elements, but they don't get crazy with it. You know what I mean? Right. Right. I don't don't know. Like that's, I can't think of any other, like based on like, I know you're not a super fan of the strangers as I am. But that's another kind of inspired by a true story that they take an idea of people that were tormented in their house and then they build the movie around that. Mm-hmm. And that works better for me than this. Yeah. When there's real people and then and then the other the other buy-in is they show the photos at the end of the real Warrens, the real Hodgson family. And it's, are you trying to sell this to me as real or are you trying to sell this to me as entertainment? Because you can't do both, man. No, no. Yeah, it's uh, it's really especially the second film, like we already said, it's real easy to avoid that whole thing. Just take that based on a true story bit out of it. No one in the theater thought that the crooked man and Valak showed up. And then what else also undoes it is I think this probably does inspire some people to get online and look into the Warren case files. Mm-hmm. So you're going to get into the Warren case files and read what this was in the that's not at all the movie that I just saw and maybe be even more upset than you might've been or weren't at all when you left the film. It's self-defeatist in a lot of ways. It's, and really avoidable. Just take 25 yellow letters off of the pre-title card. Literally. That's it. Yeah. What's your favorite tasting note of Conjuring 2? It's going to be the same one probably that yours is. Yeah. And it's one of the best horror sequences that's ever been done. And it's Valak's picture on the wall. Yeah. That's amazing. The hands look good. In the office. She's really creepy. Uh, it's a nice slow build, but it's not a slow build where you're just sitting there in silence. There is some movement around Lorraine. It's really well done. That's it's a, a great sequence. It's a different movie that I want. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Like I want like if this was just like a haunted like demon nun in the Warren house, I'd rather watch that movie mm-hmm. in its totality. Yep. Yeah, when she shows up and I love the sh- she turns into Alec Baldwin's uh, the shadow and moves across the wall and then becomes the pitcher. Great, great sequence. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. 
when used sparingly, that's the problem. That's the one thing I do remember about the nun, Matt. Uh, if if you're ever going to see it or whatnot. She's but in it too much. They don't take the lessons from Alien and realize you have such a good th- creation here. And by the end of that thing, you're so desensitized to the look of the nun that it isn't scary anymore. And that's why Alien's so good. And that's why films like The Nun and It fail because you overuse your antagonist. Yeah. And that, 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 that's, that, that's a problem of most modern horror films. Yeah. What's the oh my God! moment of Conjuring 2 where you need to come back to the old elk small batch sour mash to wash your taste of the mouth of that particular scene? Um, man. Mine has to be when the tapes make the X in the train. I'm just like, it came to this. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I was thinking about that one too. Mine's probably the Valak graffiti that Lorraine has scribbled in her own Bible and that she just happened to have it. And in the middle of her husband being locked in some basement filled with water and she can't get to him as this clown is trying to ax the door down. She decides to go fetch her Bible (laughs) and deduces that she wrote the name in the Bible. How would she even remember? Yeah, that's bullshit. (laughs) Okay. That's Who's the who's the master? Oh, did I get mine? Yeah. Who's the master distiller on Conjuring 2? This is going to be crazy for me, but again, we gave, I think we gave it to Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga in, in, in part one. I got to give it to James Wan in this. And look, like when we get into the ratings here in just a second, it, it might be completely insane, but I honestly feel like he handles the spook elements really well. James Wan does a pretty cool thing where he utilizes dark space and the slow pull in to the characters of what they're looking at better than most modern horror filmmakers. So I see a lot of his strengths in, in this film, but then I also see a lot of the bullshit that like gets thrown on you and trying to get that film to the finish line. I really noticed when Lorraine is talking to Janet on the swing mm how prevalent the use of blue and gray were in this film. I also noticed a little bit later on, and I'm not a hundred percent sure on this, but it feels grainy. The, the, the film quality feels grainy in a 1970s appropriate way, sort of to set the tone. And then like the third act, it's almost like they're shooting on really crystal clear, high def, super speed, like Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings quality, um, celluloid. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's just my interpretation, but the colors weren't. And so I found myself paying a lot of attention to the use of grays and blues. Cause it creates kind of a rainy, I think gloomy Londony feel. Well, that's good. And then Janet's all always in like red. red. Yeah. You just took the words out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. And then that's a nice backdrop that they paint with the colors of Janet and the family as red. And even some of the, uh, bed clothes that they would wear like green and yellow and brown and white striped plaid. So I guess my vote for master distiller in this is going to be set design, whoever that is. Cause I think they've created a really nice looking 1970s London horror feel movie Absolutely, for me. Yeah. So I'm going to go there. Excellent. 
How are you going to rate and grade The Conjuring 2? We have Rocket, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. This is, Matt, this is going to be wild. Like, I can't wait to do this. Go ahead. It's Call. Okay. I don't think this is, it's not a, ta- we, we have hammered oh, this yeah. film. But we've seen worse. Way worse. Yeah. And all of that being said, I can't tell you that I didn't enjoy it and I wasn't entertained this time through. Uh, I was a little bit head shaky from time to time. But there's a couple of really good moments. Valak looks awesome. <laughs> head shaking as yeah. an observer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it's call. Yeah. Uh, there's there's enough. <laughs> in a weird way, it's call with all the stuff in the film that shouldn't matter. But the stuff, the periphery stuff, the B plots, the C plots, the D plots are what save this film. The other thing, too, I didn't say, and I'm going to say it one more time, mm-hmm. or I'm going to say it for the first time. Yeah. This is bad. I'm going to, this is going to sound really ugly, but I'm going to say it. <laughs> I don't give a shit about that woman's family in this film. All those little kids. And that's a lot for me. Like I cared about Lily Taylor's family in the first one. I didn't give a shit about any of those kids. It just, they were very off putting to me and really uninteresting. Yeah. That's not good. Well, they don't do a lot to develop them. Well, Janet, at least, you know, gets her due, but so call for me. All okay. Right, go. Man, I like this. This is interesting because oh, man. I, I, I think the, the film is close to, man, it's teetering in some well territory right now with like all the kind of craziness and the hijinks. So you got to let me have two ratings here. Okay. I think it's a well film just kind of in its outright well plus. Okay. Not terrible. I've seen way worse. Oh, yeah. It's fairly enjoyable. And there's some things in here that really are super effective. Mm-hmm. Those things that I've highlighted a lot, the nun, the crooked man, the Warren snake oils, hoaxing bullshit, mm-hmm. the family elements that do work for me for the most part. Man, that all that stuff, that that's almost single barrel minus. Like that's like that's that's good material that just doesn't need to all be in the same movie. Yeah. Those are all separate ideas that can be explored and dived into. Mm-hmm. Uh the movie on itself, probably a well plus. Those ideas, I think these screen we, we talked about a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Mm. They came up with some good stuff. Uh, so th- that stuff gets a single barrel, like things I want to get into, and then they do get into them, and they're terrible. Uh, th- that's interesting. I've always been really stricken by that nun character mm-hmm. uh, in her limited use early on in the film and then really hijacking the end of this movie, much like Annabelle does. I don't know, that scene in the, the first Conjuring, I don't know, that, that that almost pulls me out of the entire movie, whereas at wow. least they don't get, like, on the train and to the airport, you know what I mean? Yeah. They're at least, we don't have to do that. But, Matt, let me ask you this. I mean, that's, we t- you mentioned it to me. We've been very high-praised on our ideas of what the Conjuring franchise is, at least conceptually, from all the endless possibilities, and I would probably say it's been lukewarm at best in the revisitation Mm -hmm. two questions for you Mm -hmm. is this uh is this something that is you're discovering as you rewatch them like just a deeper eye looking at these films and b what do you hope for next week what does next week need to do for you i'm going to answer your first question with a story okay Oh, a couple years ago, I was working with one of my colleagues at school, and we put together a huge 
cross-curricular project that dealt with some economics and some home ec and a sales race thing that we did. The news came out. We made like $5,000 for the school. We got contributions. We did marketing. We, we blew this thing up. The money went to some causes at school, but it was a good eight weeks of hard work because I had three classes. And so I had three teams paired with my colleagues, three classes, and it was a race and trying to keep three business proposals in my mind straight and kids on track. And they were seniors and super capable. So it wasn't like they were freshmen and super young, but it was a lot. Mm -hmm. We finished and I was exhausted. Like that is maybe the most exhausted I've ever been after a project Mm -hmm. in school. We finished around Halloween time. Seniors, 17, 18 year old seniors. Come on. Yeah. I'm like, guys, we need a break. I said, let's do a Halloween film and I'll build this into a return on investment piece. We'll do a little write up, make it curriculum appropriate and let's do the first conjuring. There is some discrepancy whether that's PG-13 or R. And I didn't go through the official process of getting it checked off. But I also told the kids, if it's not your cup of tea, I'm not going to make you stay in here. I will gladly write you a pass and you can go elsewhere and you don't have to watch this film. Mm -hmm. Disclaimer. We finished the film. A couple kids are scary (laughs) or scared. And I get called into the principal's office. Oh, shit. Our principal tells me that there has been a nasty gram, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. sent, and they are looking into blah, 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 blah. And I said, we don't have to look into it. We definitely did that film. (laughs) Well, you didn't go through the proper channels. I said, isn't that a PG-13 film? Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I just said, look, I blew it. And I said, who wrote the email? Well, it's anonymous. I said, it's anonymous. And where's this going? Well, they're threatening going to the district, blah, blah, blah. I said, anonymously? Is it anonymous because you don't want me to tell, you don't want to tell me for fear of retribution, which I wouldn't do. Mm -hmm. Or is it really anonymous? Which it clearly wasn't anonymous. Yeah. And if it was, then that's way too much power put in the hands of the undefined. And who's not to say that's just some pissed off kid. Yeah. Anyway, so I get written up and there's a directive put in my file about not to do that, which fine. Yeah. I like, I know that. Yeah. And it was, I yeah. guess a mistake, I guess if it was truly an R rated film, but yeah. what I'm saying is mm-hmm. prior to the discussion over the last three weeks, I was willing enough to use that in course content curriculum design. So my answer is I thought I loved this franchise. Yeah. Three weeks into it, I'm walking that back with running shoes on. I don't think I love this. I think it's wildly overrated in my own mind. Mm -hmm. And so there's the answer to your first question. What was the second question? What do you need from the third part? Or what do you hope to find? (laughs) Well, okay, so I'm with you. The removal of based on a true story would be a start. But we're not getting that. (laughs) We're not going to get that. Um. I'm going to go with the introduction of a singular antagonist that is a plausible piece in what is a supernatural team-up movie. I need it to be more grounded. Sure. 
in a courtroom drama, it seems to lay an environment that seems to be grounded because there's formality and courtroom processes and like a direction that you already put down the road. So let me ask you the same questions. What do you think about the same two? I love that you told that story because maybe you and I should teach a class on film business and what money is in Hollywood because I think people go to the movies, they go buy their popcorn, they go sit in their seats and theaters are opening up again. So amen to that. Mm -hmm. I don't think people take any stock into the notion on like what the money piece means to the business itself. It's Mm -hmm. a self-sustaining economy in a crazy way. You sent me a crazy article this week actually about China and them pulling out on the Hollywood system is kind of a big deal. Uh, how many, there's like a billion people over there and foreign in numbers usually. And we talked about, we had a meeting with a guy at bold films before who says films make more money internationally than they do domestically. Mm-hmm. If you take that huge chunk away from huge releases, huge Marvel releases mm-hmm. coming up and that's, a, we'll talk about that another day. Uh, I would love to teach a class like that. You know what I mean? The, the the budgetary means of return on investment and money making with films is so interesting to me. Mm-hmm. How films like this built on nothing or a film like Split that's made for $3 million and it's the biggest earning movie of all of 2018, mm-hmm. 2017. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating to me. Like yeah. I, I get so deep into the weeds with those numbers and amen to Box Office Mojo for that. Yeah. I'm with you, Matt. I'm really walking the fine line of, I really liked that first movie when I saw it. I liked the second movie when I saw it. I thought I liked (laughs) Annabelle Creation when I saw it, but like, it's all just very, it's not terrible. I've seen way worse horror. Like, I've seen some shit. Mm -hmm. This ain't Rob Zombie's Halloween where I'm just like so repulsed in the theaters. But this is something that's like, A, making a lot of money. B, not really doing it for me. But C, I'm going to go see the next one because I guess... (laughs) I'm a horror film sadist. You know what I mean? So, but I think I'm with you. I think my image of the Conjuring franchise in totality has been impacted by us kind of going back with a fine tooth comb as films do need fine tooth combing from time to time. You know what I mean? Yeah. I kind of hate that though. So we sort of ruined this film for ourselves. I wouldn't maybe ruined this a a bit too far. I don't think that's a bad thing though, because what that does for me with these films, it does the opposite with films that I paid little credence to at times as well. That's fair. Like a film like blowout was a film that I saw and I really liked it. But then when we did it and talked about it and really got into it, it was like, you know what? That film's kind of almost a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it has the opposite effect in films that, you know, don't quite warrant that same type of conversation. So I think there's some give and pull there, but it's a big problem with the Hollywood studio system of horror filmmaking for me. I'm just not, I'm not here for that. A24, Ari Aster, Hereditary, Midsommar, mm-hmm. You're Next, The Witch, like it follows. The, the Babadook, all those, the, yeah, It Follows. I'd rather watch that than a lot of this stuff because you don't have the studio giving you, you need to put a Crooked Man in there. <laughs> right. You know, you know what I mean? Yes. So... That's just the state of the business right now. I'm really looking forward to, to Candyman and Monkey Pond. And that's Jordan Peele wrote the screenplay, but that's Universal Studios mm-hmm. producing that movie. Are they going to let artists do the film they want to do? Or is there going to be a studio saying, 
you need to have more of this in there too. Like th- that's kind of a big movie for me coming up. I have the poster hanging up in my living room right now. <laughs> Warner Brothers is one of the titans of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Warner Brothers, MGM, Fox. I mean, God. And again, here we are for what the seventh week in a row, no, no. <laughs> expressing our frustrations. And it goes all the way back to Wonder Woman eighty four. Now I'm appreciative for what Warner is that Brothers, where it started. I think so. Is that where all this? Because it was that, and then Snyder League. It's, that so. was done on purpose, and we knew where that was going to go. But man, they really need a reimagining or a new design on the studio should be there for PNA, but the studio needs to get the hell out of the way and the suits need to shut up enough so that someone can just tell a story that doesn't have to check all your tentpole boxes when it's not a tentpole release. You know who the only person they're giving any type of slack to is one person. It's Nolan. Yep. Where's the studio interference in tenant? Cause that movie, like we had to, right on the wall to just make sense of the plot. And that might've actually needed a little bit like uh, maybe pushing it here, but they don't give it to him. And that's weird. The beauty of like him is that he's able to make the movies he wants to make. Like, why don't give, why don't you give that same type of, of pool to James Wan? He's proven himself with films like saw and all the fast stuff in insidious fat furious. (laughs) Why, why do you have the same problem with him where you need you feel the need to do the same thing? I don't understand, but man, I, I don't know if it's been recently, but as of late, I've seen a lot of heavy studio interference uh, changing the course of filmmaking. Do you expect much different next week? Do you think we're going to no, be... No, I don't. Finally, they figured... I don't either. Because well, James Wan's not in the director's chair. Strike one. So same studio. Tonally, it's going to be different. It's the same studio. It's a HBO Max release in conjunction with the theaters, which has already proved problematic for us. I, I don't know. I'm honestly preparing for the worst. Worst in the franchise? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Be interesting talk next week. But let's wrap up this up. That, Matt, that was great. That I was, was just like, oh, that was... This is why we do the podcast. We get, go down those philosophical routes. <laughs> but let's wrap this up with a nightcap. He's got his own rhyme. Get horror back to like what was so good about horror and like the seventies and eighties where you're coming up with like new creations. Like you created a new one. He's got his own rhyme. Just go do its own movie. It doesn't need to be in this thing, but I digress. The nightcap this week, Matt is Ed and Lorraine Warren, whether we want them to be real or fictitious in this film series they're pretty striking. They're very they're played very well by Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga. If you could take those characters played by them and we could place them in any horror film in existence, where are you going to put those two characters? Is it okay if it changes the course of the film by yeah, their no, appearance? Yeah, absolutely. No, of course. It's going to ch- cuz it's going to turn into like a séance movie. <laughs> so I'm going to take the snake oil salesmen and introduce them to a group that is about secrecy and tradition and a dark dark past that is the great chowder society and i'm putting them smack dab in the middle of ghost story oh wow 
those two mm. with that group of those four curmudgeonly old bastards with a secret that is and decades Cra- old. And Craig Wasson. And Craig Wasson's dinkus <laughs> uncovering that and what I think might happen in that film. I have the idea in my mind really solidly right now about Ed trying to prove his legitimacy to uh, the world. That they bring him in or them in with the sole purpose, because those guys are kind of bastards. Yeah. Of making him look like a royal ass. The Childish Society. That'd be that'd be great. I want to see him in Ghost Story. Okay, excellent. I kind of went a, a similar route, uh, you know, with the legitimacy aspect. You bring in these two characters and you want them to A, bring light to the truth of what you're trying to expose, or B, bring answers to the unexplainable. So that kind of happens, both of those kind of happen in the film that I picked, 1961, I believe, Robert Wise's original The Haunting. Uh, How crazy. Yeah, I want them in in that because what Dr. Marrow is doing in that is to bring light to, you know, these people investigating, like, you know, trying to find answers to, like, sleep and this and that mixed in with the paranormal. Now, what if Aaron Lorraine Warren come along for that same trip with Russ Tamlin and Julie Harris? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I picked the original, not the remake, with Lily Taylor, Catherine Zeta, and uh, Liam Neeson and Owen Wilson. That that, that remake's pretty wild. Like, that that was a film I saw early in my youth, and it affected me. Like, I thought it was pretty freaky, but it's kind of a terrible movie. Mm -hmm. I want them in the original haunting, investigating an old fan Because when I see the Warrens, and maybe it's Ed Sideburns, Mm -hmm. I think gothic horror. And if it's not that, if it wasn't The Haunting, I would think Hammer Whore. You know what I mean? Yeah. English Hammer Whore is always so prim and proper, and the sets are great. The costumes are great. The blood's amazing. I want them in one of those films, but put them in The Haunting first. Or The Innocence, Matt. I kind of thought you would would have picked maybe a film like that as well. Man, I didn't even think about that. No. That would have been maybe a better choice. Honorable mention to The Innocence. I, I see that entire film just right there. Yeah. Ooh, that's good, especially because it's family and debauchery within the family. And they seem to fit that like slow burn haunted house film. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Isn't Lorraine kind of like a governess in some a ways? A little anyhow? bit, yeah. Especially the way they dress her. Well, she comes in to act as the governess to these kids. Hair pinned up tight and plenty of ruffles. Neglecting her own Judy. Matt, this has been a lot of fun uh, getting into the weeds with, as we do on this show with, with these films. And as they continue to perplex us from week to week on the decision-making and the powers that be. Mm. But next week, we're going to wrap this up with The Conjuring Part 3. The devil made me do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here's another thing. Are you a fan of the numbered sequel? Like, would you rather have a colon title or The Conjuring 2? Colon. Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. I, the number is just so nondescript for me. It just feels kind of like schlocky marketing effect, machine in full effect. But I say uh, Spider-Man 2 might be maybe the best superhero movie ever made. So, <laughs> Not amazing Spider-Man. Uh, yeah, no, no. The, the one Spider-Man 2. <laughs> 2, right. I don't know what to expect next week. Next week might be either a roast of the movie or a praising for the things we've needed so desperately, but uh, I'm buckling up because I I don't know what to expect. Me either. It's going to be quite a trip, (laughs) isn't it? It'll be quite a trip, but you had that coming. Uh, There's some fun stuff uh, cooking up on the Patreon. Um, That'll be announced here uh, really shortly for the month of June. we got some fun stuff uh, 
uh, churning out along there. But cheers. Cheers, Jesse. Hit us up on Facebook or Instagram at RiceMileProductions at gmail.com. Uh, we got fun merch. Go get your own Crooked Man shirt on tpublic.com. And like I said, patreon.com slash ricemilefilms. Uh, we're going to do some fun TV stuff on there uh, and lead up to, to Loki. But I'm really looking forward to what we're going to talk about here in, in just a little bit. Me too. Uh, and then, yeah, our, our, our picks for June. Matt and I are doing kind of an alternating pick uh, watch along and pick a, a film to get into. And June's picks are amazing. So, mm-hmm. but until then I got to get going. I'm going to go look at some of my old toys. I hope they don't do that zoetrope effect and have some creepy creature come out to me, but believe it or not, Matt, I actually, all my old toys from childhood, I still have every single one of them. That's awesome. Yeah. Awesome or sick, a pain in the <laughs> sick or a pain in the ass later when I have to go through them and just eventually just throw them all out. Well, I was hoping I could uh, talk you into conducting a seance because I'd like to bring Ed and Lorraine back from the dead because I'm really needing some investigative work done on who sent the anonymous email that I scared the shit out of their kid when I showed the conjuring two years ago. And as long as Lor- uh, Ed's not an ass, I'm all for it. Let's do it. All righty. We'll see you all next week. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. For more Rye Smile content, go to patreon.com slash Films for exclusive bonus episodes, plus feature-length watch-along commentaries on your favorite movies and TV show recap episodes covering the best from the small screen. For Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. The Conjuring 2 is property of Warner Brothers Pictures, New Line Cinema, The Saffron Company, and Atomic Monster Productions, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Tell me about the beginning, the first night of your happening, but was your brother playing, pulling the bell. I wasn't quite sure now. You were scared? Yeah. Janet, what about Janet? Yeah. When it comes from your area, Janet, do you feel anything in your throat? No. You just don't feel anything? <laughs> Now I'm looking at Jan. Those mighty ears. And the voice comes her mouth doesn't move or nothing to do. Line up. I know. Jan, can you tell when the voice is going to come through you? Nothing. You know who I am? You know who my name is? Yeah. <laughs>